Good morning, everyone. Are we all awake? Why don't we go ahead and begin with Hail Mary on this Saturday that's devoted to Our Lady. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sins, now the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so it's good uh, to see all, all here this morning. Uh, everyone had a good evening, a good night of rest, and a good morning. So we're continuing our reflections uh, of our theme of the prodigal spouse. And hopefully I was able to convey yesterday that the real heart of the message of this parable is one of merciful love. Uh, in our own lives and our relationship to each other, particularly our spouses, and our relationship to God our Heavenly Father, we need to have that attitude of receptivity to receive the others in merciful love and to allow ourselves to be received. Latter one, as we talked about, being the more challenging one, to allow ourselves to be received in that embrace, to allow ourselves to be seen in the loving gaze of the Father. And so today, in our three talks, we're going to look at some common obstacles to merciful love uh, in marriage, in other relationships, and of course, uh, in our relationship to God. Things that make us pull away and not want to be received, and also, in a certain sense, hesitant to receive others. And the first one today is one that has talked about a lot recently, let's say uh, over the past five years, uh, a topic that has gained a lot of ascendancy, particularly because of the work of a woman named Brene Brown. How many of you have heard of Brene Brown? Raise your hand. Uh, I'm literally shocked that more people have not heard of her, particularly women, even though I think she's valuable for men too. So her name is Brene Brown. It's, her first name is Renee, but with a B. And Renee Brown is a, sort of a sociologist, but she is a speci specialist in researching the phenomena we're going to talk about today. And that is the phenomenon of shame. She is a shame researcher. She came to prominence about 10 years ago with a, a TED Talk, a YouTube video she gave. But since then, she's written a number of bestsellers. And in fact, just a few months ago, she put out a Netflix special, which I encourage you to watch, called A Call to Courage, although there is some language in there uh, that is meant for adults. Not too bad, but it basically condenses everything that she talks about. So most of what I'm going to say today and a lot of the themes that you're going to hear about come from Renee Brown. Actually, the truth is, I actually thought of some of this myself, and then one of my students said, Father, you sound a lot like Renee Brown, and I had no idea if she was either, until I started reading her, and her work really echoed with me. If you're going to read one book by her, I would suggest reading the book called Daring Greatly. I would suggest that every single woman in this room read that book. Men too, but every single woman read this book because it really, really is transformative. And I can't tell you the amount of people that I've seen uh, by getting in touch with her theories and her thought really changed their lives. So today we're gonna to talk about shame. 
We first, though, have to make a distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt is something good. Guilt is what we feel whenever we do something wrong, whenever we commit a sin. We feel guilty for it, for the sin we committed. Therefore, we should hopefully ask for forgiveness. On the other part, shame is not something good. Shame is sorrow and sadness for who we are as persons. Shame is identified with ourselves as persons. Guilt is identified with actions or deeds. When we feel shame, we feel ashamed of who we are, of our being, of our identity. There's something wrong with us. And shame can have a lot of different origins in either things that we've done that we are ashamed of, and also things that were done to us, particularly when we were younger. We're going to see the main causes of shame is sexual abuse. You can also see it in abandonment, neglect, trauma, bullying when we were children. Things that were done to us that caused us to believe that we were unloved or unlovable, that we weren't worthy, that we didn't have a dignity. We identify ourselves with that shame. But also, choices that we made in the past or choices that we're making today, most of these choices, from my experience, deal with sexual issues uh, and these other sins that make us hide, that we're ashamed of what we're doing. We don't want others to know about, know about it. But also it can come, as we're going to sort of highlight throughout our time, sort of a general sense of not being perfect. That we make mistakes, we're weak, we fall into sin, I'm not perfect, therefore I'm no good. Now last year, you could probably get the CDs, I gave a retreat for women called Perfectionism and Spiritual Childhood. A lot of what I'm talking about in this retreat, I also talked about last year, although I'm developing the ideas a little bit more. That we're not perfect, and so we're always trying to get attention, trying to earn love, trying to earn respect from others. But basically, when we allow shame to take over in our lives, we come to believe that we are unloved and unlovable. Again, this makes sense. If we believe that, we're not going to want to be received by God or by our spouses. We are going to pull away. That's how it works. And it can also lead to a lot of unhealthy behaviors, uh, including potentially some pretty serious personality disorders, but we're going to have a time to talk about that a little bit later. But what I want to do is start by looking at this phenomenon of shame, particularly in regards to the younger son. And so yesterday we sort of focused on the younger son and his allowing himself to be received along with the father. But today we're going to look at him before he encounters the father. And to see how uh, his life there sort of embodies what shame is. So first of all, what does he do? He breaks off that relationship with his father. He moves out of the house to go live his life of sin. He is not living 
under the Father's gaze of merciful love. The Father cannot see him. Therefore, he is going to be confused and lose his identity. And so he begins to look for meaning in his other friends, in his gambling, in his picking up prostitutes, in his sexual licentiousness, in his acting out. Quite possibly these things are used to cover up the pain he feels and the shame he feels, but it's just a vicious cycle. He can become to experience more shame. Until ultimately what happens, he is left abandoned, isolated, and completely alone. It's just him and the pigs. And remember, in the Old Testament, you couldn't eat pit pork, you couldn't be around pigs, you couldn't touch pigs. They were filthy, they were outcast. They were symbolic of the Gentiles who were not part of the chosen people. So even the pigs are getting treated better than him. He is completely an outcast. He's completely filled with shame. I mean, really, these pigs are getting fed better than I am? And I'm, I'm a son? He's filled with complete shame. And so, we come to find out, you can imagine, he's working with these pigs. They didn't have showers like we do back now. Probably stunk of the pig and the mud and the filth. His clothes are probably tattered and ragged. He is unworthy to be a son, probably unrecognizable, at least to himself. Now, as we'll see, the father recognizes him, but he's unrecognizable to himself. He's talked about it. He gets the idea, hey, I'm going to go and try to convince the father to let me back into the house. And so as he is approaching, we talked about him rehearsing what he'd say. Do you think maybe he had some second thoughts? The father's going to reject me. He's going to not let me in. Or he's going to really punish me severely for the things that I have done. I need to go back. I'm quite sure there were several times where he hesitated and thought that he might not press on. In fact, maybe he was doing that and thinking of it just before the father saw him a long distance away. And so if we can sort of understand this, the symbolic of the shame, the confusion of the identity of living apart from the father, what other biblical story does this sound a lot alike? It sounds like the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in that second creation story in Genesis 2 and 3 beautiful story that talks about sort of the origins of creation, the origins of humanity, and the origins of sin and so many things in the world. And really it's Adam and Eve, more than uh, the prodigal son, that gives us the paradigm for understanding shame. So we're going to see so many parallels. So what's the first choice that Adam and Eve make? to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from that tree. They made a choice, a choice that separates them from God. Just as the younger son made his choice to take his inheritance and leave. And immediately what happens? They realize they were naked. There was this uncertainty about who they were and who they were created to be. They couldn't see themselves anymore in the light of God's sight. 
And so what do they do? They cover themselves in their shame. They cover their bodies. John Paul II talks a fair amount about this in theology of the body. And so as a result, if they're hiding themselves, if they're covering themselves, they can't open their arms to embrace. They can't receive each other or allow themselves to be received. You can't do that if you're covering your body and you're holding yourself in in shame. And so this brings about that original discord between man and woman, the, the, the competition between the sexes, that separation. Before, they were living in that unity of the two, but now there is a separation. And it has led them both to be in isolation, not living in communion, but apart from each other, and ultimately in hiding. Hiding from each other, but more particularly hiding from God. Why? Because God's going to be mad at us. He's going to strike us down. He's going to punish us for what we have done. This is the result of shame, losing their identity, confusion, insecurity, and hiding. The person who is filled with shame is going to hide, is going to put up those walls to make sure no one can see who they truly are. Otherwise, they'd be exposed and they'd become the scene as that they believe to be so dirty, filthy, and unlovable. Does this make sense to you all? All right. So the truth is this. Everybody deals with shame. We all have things that we've done that we are ashamed of. And sometimes we can have these bouts of shame that come along, sometimes unexpected. But also there are certain individuals who completely live out of their shame. It animates everything they do. Not everybody can spot it, but certain people can. To realize that this person is not acting out of their identity, but they're acting out of their shame. They've come to believe that they are unworthy. They're not the sons or the daughters, and so they begin to act out. So regardless of what stage it is, maybe ashamed of an action, periods or bouts of shame or living and acting out of complete shame, it can have impacts in our own lives and our relationship with God. We see it all the time. People who commit sins or who are habitually committing sins, they don't want to go to Mass. They don't want to pray because they are ashamed that God is going to condemn them or other people are going to look at them and judge them. Get over yourself. More people are thinking about what their fantasy football team is going to do this weekend or about themselves to care a lick about you and whether you receive communion or not. No one is paying attention. But also, it makes us not open to showing merciful love to others. I'm not going to be able to show you love or be merciful if I can't be merciful to myself. If I think that I'm no good, if I think that I'm not in the image of, of God, I'm not going to be able to receive you. I'm closed off. I'm going to step away. And even more so, we are not going to be open to being received because we feel that we are unworthy. Like we talked about yesterday, that son who could have pulled himself away from the father, not wanting to be received, feeling unworthy. 
And a lot of these things I talked about, there are a number of different sources uh, that can come, that can lead to this uh, abuse, neglect, and whatnot, uh, sins that we've committed. But I want to focus on how shame that I've seen from my own experience, uh, the main sources for men and women today, all right? Granted, there can be a number of other sources, but the way that I see shame manifested primarily in men and primarily in women, what they share in common, however, usually is they're both rooted in the body. There's something about the body uh, and how the body experiences or retains or manifests shame. So first of all, with men. Most of the time today, shame is associated with pornography. Plain and flat out. Shame is associated with pornography. Men who look at and are often quite addicted to porn, whether they realize it or not, are filled with shame. And I've talked about this before, several years ago at a marriage conference that we did, and also at men's conferences, but I'm gonna reiterate this. Boys have much more predominant looking at porn. Girls look at it too, all right? And it's getting worse with the girls. Don't think that the girls are not looking at pornography. But in general, young people today, particularly boys, start looking at porn at about 10 or 11 years old, all right? It's because their parents are stupid and don't restrict their look at their internet usage or because they don't restrict the friends they're hanging around with and all their friends are looking at porn. And there's not the kind of porn that we were introduced to when we were younger. This is not the playboy under your dad's bed. This is a hardcore video pornography that is free and unleashed into people's minds. And it creates a severe dopamine release in the brain so that the boy or girl, particularly boy who's looking at it consistently from the age of 10 or 12, by the time they get into high school, they're addicted. And by the time they get to me, when they're 18 years old, they are severely addicted and severely filled with shame. Pornography is the ultimate thing that causes shame. Very rarely you're going to see anybody looking at porn in public. You're doing it by yourself. You're trying to hide your tracks. You're going to use your, your incognito browser so that nobody can see. And what it does is it causes shame, particularly in Christians who know they shouldn't be doing that. Shame, which can lead to insecurity, which can also lead to self-hatred. They hate themselves because they're doing this, particularly at some of the stuff they're looking at. Now, one of the things, and it can also, of course, lead to other unwanted sexual behavior, and one of the interesting things that I'll propose here, I won't get into much, that I read from a counselor who was writing on this, is a lot of the time we say, well, oh, the boys are looking at it because they're filled with lust. And eh, not really. It can become lust, but quite often in men, younger and older, lust is nothing more than eroticized anger, particularly in the way that a lot of pornography, the man is dominating the woman. And that, that anger, which often guys have because of testosterone, is reinforced by looking at porn because they're angry at themselves and they hate themselves 
for what they're looking at. And so quite often, you got to deal with the anger in order to get to uh, the lust and the pornography. But what happens is, is this pornography and the self-hatred and the shame that comes with it stunts emotional maturity, stunts our human development, perverts our idea of sexuality. It can also kill spirituality by allowing certain apathy to set in, this spiritual sloth can't be interested in things of the spirit if you're mired in things of the flesh. And what it does is it impacts our relationship with God. If you're addicted to porn, you are not going to want to be near God. You feel the Lord's going to cast you out. You're unworthy. Or you're going to become non-interested. But it also impacts relationships, particularly with uh, the opposite sex. I am telling you right now, kids from the age of 18 to 25, 90% of boys are addicted to pornography. 95% of boys are addicted to pornography. Wake up if you don't realize that. If you have children that age, they're boys, they're probably addicted. And if you have grandkids, they're probably addicted. This is how it is. And we're going to talk about how to overcome this. And I hate to be sound so negative, but it's what I deal with every day. Not only is seeing the boys in their shame and their addiction, and often too young to want to get help, but the way it affects the girls. So many beautiful, wonderful girls that I see all the time. They're in their late 20s, early 30s, no boyfriends. Why? There are plenty of boys out there. The boys are too immature. The boys are too scared. The boys are too perverted in their minds. A lot of the times, the boys don't work like they should because pornography has warped their brains. Problems 50-year-old guys share, they have in their mid-20s. Studies show that. But when it carries on into marriage, there is a husband who is addicted to pornography. That shame comes in and they're going to pull themselves away from their wives. There's going to be an emotional distancing. There's going to be sort of a lack of a true intimacy in bed. There's going to be a hiding. And so what happens is when it's exposed, a lot of the times it is a leading factor for divorce. And sometimes women don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to embrace with merciful love the husband who is pulling away and who is ashamed. And so I'm not trying to point the fingers at anybody here, but if we've got some problems with pornography, fellas, please come talk to me. I can teach you how to, how to get in the right direction. My concern is for you, but my bigger concern is for your children and grandchildren. We've got to nip this in the bud because it causes so much shame and makes us unwilling and unable to receive merciful love. Number two, what about women? Well, surprise, surprise, it's more complicated. As it often is, women, things are a little bit more complicated. A lot of it is going to be tied to some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next talk. But with women in general, the shame is, is overarching, but a lot of it does deal with the body, with the way they perceive themselves, with the way they look, with the way they believe if they're beautiful or not. Uh, often many ashamed of how they look, ashamed of the perception of who they are. Now, is there an issue with pornography with women? Yes. Is there an issue with uh, other sexual issues? Yes. And, and particularly for women, it is self-abuse. Uh, it's how it is. I'm going to talk about it, y'all. It's true. 
I don't have a woman come to me and say, Father, I've been away from confession for 40 years. I'm filled with shame. I did something 40 years ago I'm ashamed of. And I'm like, okay, I know what it's going to be. And they tell me what it is. And I'm like, it's a sin of weakness. The Lord understands. He's going to grant you his forgiveness, but you've allowed shame to consume you that you've taken 40 years to come back. No, the Lord's love is tremendously merciful. But for women, a lot of the times, and for different reasons, to really know the details, you have to look at last year's uh, talk. It's connected to perfectionism. God does not expect you to be perfect. He doesn't. When he says, be perfect as my father's perfect, it means in loving your enemies. We strive for holiness, but we are not going to be perfect. But women, so critical of themselves, having this super high ideal, particularly sometimes in order to win love or to impress the father, they feel they're not lovable if they're not perfect. And so that's why St. Therese and the little way, the way of spiritual childhood is so important. We learn to embrace our imperfections, embrace our weakness, and use it as a way to get closer to the mercy of the Father rather than pull away in the opposite direction. To be able to accept that we're not perfect, but we shouldn't be ashamed of it. The Lord still loves us. He loves us probably even more because we are not perfect. Because it opens up the space for us to receive and to be received. But for women, though, in my experience, probably the largest and most significant source of shame is the sad, tragic, angering reality of sexual abuse. Particularly childhood sexual abuse, but also abuse in relationships, the, the abuse and the violence of rape. Women are significantly higher when it comes to being victims of sexual abuse. There are men who are victims of sexual abuse, but women tend to be a larger number. Again, with men, they, we do have victims, and they can cause tremendous damage in their lives. But with women, I have seen it more. What happens is, is when a woman is abused, uh, that she tells herself, I'm no good, I'm used up, I'm a piece of trash, I'm unloved or I'm, I'm lovable. So they'll begin to cycle through relationships with complete losers, complete abusers, and it just continues to be reinforced. Now, granted, there are other times when they can shut themselves off, we can act out uh, in some very weird ways. We can have some self-destructive behavior. And of course, we can have it as a source of some, some pretty significant personality disorders. All of those need to be treated in uh, different ways. But the reality is abuse in women and in men uh, or neglect or, or whatever it is, particularly sexual abuse, can be that major cause of shame where the woman pushes the God away by saying I'm a lovable, but often pushes the husband away. Um, I can tell you so many stories I've seen. A man who came in and his wife just could not enter into that marital embrace, would run away from him, uh, and finally sat down together and come to find out the woman had never said it before. She'd kept it secret for so long that she had been abused by her brothers. No wonder she kept men away. There were the walls up. 
couple, hopefully, they went to therapy and, and got some help. But these are the ways it manifests and shame destroys relationships. There are other manifestations of it, but again, we can see how we're called to be received by the Father and by our spouse in merciful love, but shame pushes us away. So what, what is the solution? How can we come to overcome shame in our lives? Well, if you read Brene Brown or you watch some of the videos, she's going to give you a lot of things. But the most important thing is this. you got to bring it to light. You can't keep it in the darkness. Whether it's something that happened to you that you're not guilty of, but maybe blaming yourself of, or something that you've done or you are doing, you got to bring it to the light. St. Ignatius of Loyola says the devil wants us to keep our sin in the darkness. Christ wants us to bring it in the light where it no longer has power or control over us. But to do this, it takes a lot of courage. Therefore, we have to dare greatly. We need to, though, have that safe space. I'm not saying that we should go out, you know, in the middle of Times Square and say, everybody, let me tell you what I've been doing. You got to have a safe space in order to do it, a place where you know you won't be judged. It should ideally be with a spouse or a friend or in confession. I mean, how many people come, oh, Father, I'm not going to go to Father to confess this because he's going to judge me. I ain't even going to remember what you tell me. And I frankly don't care. I see it every day. You're no different than anybody else. Your sin is not special. It is. Sorry, I know. Let's confess narcissism now because you think your sin is special. No, it's not. We all struggle with sin. It's all baked to the same. But they're there to help. But simply by saying, I have the safe space, let me tell you what I've done or I'm doing that I'm ashamed of. And so, when you allow yourself to be received in merciful love, what happens is the shame and the lies that come from the shame die down, and the truth of who you are really begins to build up. Because this is what shame makes us do. Believe lies about ourselves. We're never going to overcome this. We're never going to amount to anything. We're no good. God can never love me. My spouse will condemn me. The priest is going to make me do 20 rosaries kneeling on glass. No, these are all lies. And the devil wants you to keep it in the dark, but the Lord wants you to bring it to the light, to be able to have it exposed to the truth. Yeah, these things are not good, but there's mercy, there's love, there's healing, there's redemption. There's restoration. Look at the way the father treats the son, the younger son. He's going to do the same thing to us in our shame. And so, particularly though, let me go back to this, is that, yeah, we may share it, but shame really comes to set in when we are younger. And so going back to those themes of pornography, Parents, particularly fathers, you need to sit down with your children. Or you need to encourage your children to sit down with their children to talk about pornography. Boys and girls, boys in particular. And listen, if your kid's looking at porn, don't punish them. They're struggling with it. You've got to build a relationship of trust where the boy can come and say, Dad, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me? And you say, yeah, I can help you. And the probably, okay, let me, let me give you uh, this, this uh, 
wonderful thing that most people don't know about or they're not paying attention to it's two words if you or your kids have an iphone there is something called screen time you can go in there you can control the code you can block off when they look at social media you can block off when your children even for yourself can look at the internet and you can block certain websites you got to cut off the near occasion of sin it's the alcoholic who says, oh, uh, I want to quit drinking, but I'm going to keep my, 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 my fridge stocked with beer. No, you got to get rid of it. But the, the addict doesn't want to get rid of it. And so we don't want to get rid of our access to pornography. But until you do, you're not serious. And so we need to train our kids in virtue and to be able to have them resist the temptation, but they can't do it alone. Parents have a big obligation. And particularly, you've got to notice these signs of shame, the drawing back, potentially self-destructive behavior, different things that can manifest in your children or grandchildren. Particularly for the daughters, so many young women today filled with shame, perfectionism. We're going to talk about why that is in our next talk of one of the big reasons. But you've got to affirm your children. Tell them you love them. Tell them that you're, they're good. Build them up particularly fathers to their daughters. Fathers, take your daughters out on a date at least once a month. Just you and them, not together. Well, with your three daughters, just you and them. Simply to be with them and listen to them. The impact that is going to have, you can't even begin to imagine. The role of the father, that's why I'm glad there's so many men here. The role of the father in the lives of the son and the daughter not saying that moms aren't important, but that moms are going to be moms because it's in their nature. Being a dad is not in our nature. you got to work at it. Uh, and so to show that love to the daughter, to help her build up her identity, because the father really does reflect the father's love to be able to receive them. That's what I see in girls so often. They are unsure of their identity because their dad was emotionally distant, the dad wasn't there, the parents were divorced, whatever it is. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Start working on it now. Number two, know the triggers and, 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 and things that bring about the shame. What happens? Whenever I start feeling shame, whenever that dark cloud rolls in, or whenever it gets really, really bad, is there something that I'm doing or something that's been doing to me? that makes me, done to me, that makes me step out of the loving gaze of the Father. It could be stress, it could be certain anniversaries, it could be people that remind us of trauma, whatever it is. Know what those triggers are and put in things that are in place to be able to know how to handle it. To be able to say, oh, I know I'm gonna be stressed this week, let me reach out to my spouse, let me have more prayer time. I know this anniversary's coming up, let me do what I need so that I don't live in that shame and can stay in the Father's love. But don't be surprised when the clouds of shame do come. They, they, those clouds come and they cover the sun, they cover the gaze of the Father, and we can be confused about who we are, and we can start telling ourselves lies. Now, I often have people come to me, the students that I direct, and when I see them all nervous and freaking out, I'll say, stop, who's talking to me? Susan or Susan Shane? Who's talking to me? 
William or William Shane? Nine times out of ten, it's William Shane. I said, I don't want to hear William Shane. I want to hear William. I know who William is. I know who Susan is. And so we begin to allow that shame to operate, and it destroys us. And so we got to learn to do when it does come. And I'll give you what I think, besides bring it to light, is the most important thing. To put ourselves intentionally in the sight of the merciful gaze of the Father. There are things that we can do intentionally while we're experiencing shame, because you never fully shake it, but even when we're not, to really live in the gaze of the Father, to, to allow the sun to shine on us, to remind us of who we are. That gaze of the Father that can come directly from the Father can also come through Jesus, because Jesus is the image of the icon of the Father. So think of our Lord, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, because she's so ashamed she's going to draw water at noon when no one else is there. The woman caught in adultery, probably half-clothed, everybody looking at her and laughing at her, wanting to stone her. Or Mary Magdalene, known to be filled with sin. What brought about that conversion? What brought about the change in these women? It's because of the gaze of Jesus. The way the Lord looked at them with love and merciful love. In his eyes, he received them, saw who they were, told them who they were. When we are looked at with eyes of merciful love, we know it. We can experience it. We can feel it. We know our dignity. It's the gaze of unconditional love and acceptance. And that's the gaze of Jesus, the way he wants to look at each one of us. And so, Father Philippe, in that same book that I quoted last night, I don't know, do you all have fire and light here, sister? I know you all have a lot of uh, books, sister doesn't know. Uh, go to a bookstore uh, and see if they have that. If not, buy Father Jacques Philippe's other books. They're really good. He says, in addition, Jesus' glance purifies because it is a look of hope. And so not only does Jesus' glance tell us who we are, but it also purifies us. It's the, the sun that parts the clouds of shame. Jesus does not consider our poverty, our woundedness, our human blemishes. He sees the, children, the child or the children of God in us, the glory and splendor already, already ours. Just like the Father sees the Son, even though the Son can't see himself in the parable, the Father sees it. And it's that Father's gaze that potentially gives the Son the power to be able to go and encounter the Father. So, don't run away from prayer. Don't run away from Mass. That is the dumbest thing you can do. I tell people this all the time. That's like saying, I am bitterly cold, it's dark outside, I'm miserable. Let me go walk further into the forest when there's a fire 50 feet away from me. That's stupid. But we do it all the time. Instead of saying, yeah, I'm cold and I'm miserable, let me go closer to the fire, closer to the Eucharist, closer to my Christian friends, closer to Mass, we counterintuitively go in the opposite direction. And so, being in that habit of being with the Lord, of knowing His love, of being consistent in prayer and confession, we're going to be reminded of that 
that when the clouds come, we're going to be more tempted to draw closer to it. But I really think it is also important to have people in your lives who always are willing to welcome you with merciful love. Ideally, that is going to be your spouse. But it could be friends. It could be priests or religious. It could be uh, family members. People that you know are not going to judge you. That are going to give you unconditional love but still call you out of that shame and sometimes call you to conversion and repentance from your sin. It's, and again, this may be something very gradual. Quite often we want the Lord to shatter our walls and destroy the shame. But quite often it happens more like water over rocks, erosion over the centuries, constantly being with and being intentional about being with people who do love us unconditionally who do receive us and show us that merciful love, gradually break down the walls and remind us of who we are and cast the lies away. really do think priests and religious are very important for this because priests and religious who are celibate can love in a unique way, in a virginal and chaste way, where we're not interested, we're we're detached, we don't want to possess and that we can show the love of the eyes of the Father. And I can see it in the ways that I've been able to love my students, many of them who've come to see me as a spiritual father. And I can see it in the lives of a lot of the religious sisters whose pure love changes people's lives, like being loved by the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that's one of the great tragedies why we don't have more religious sisters. I really think there's a correlation. There are people out there in their shame who need to be loved in a pure, virginal way. But if we don't have those people out there, because we're all mired in our shame and sin, we're not going to be able to do it. So, let me wrap this up by going back to the story of the younger son coming back and of Adam and Eve in their shame. Because there's some parallels here. We didn't complete the story. And so here is the son approaching the father, but what happens? The father sees him from far off. And it's that gaze is when he's first received. And whether he realizes it or not, that's when the shame ends. And the father sees him, and so the son, and maybe it's a particular grace that precedes the actual embrace, allows him to overcome his shame and to come and be embraced by the father. And so it's that embracing and then the clothing and the garments and with the ring that restores his identity and restores his dignity. Look at the story of Adam and Eve. I think we often got the story of Adam and Eve wrong. Yes, they're now filled with shame because of what they've done, probably fearful of God and hiding. But Yahweh is walking. He sees them. He doesn't say, I am going to strike you down, or I'm going to turn you into a a beast or a toad for what you've done. Instead, he really doesn't condemn them. He says, because you've done this, these are the consequences of your actions. Most people, though, say, well, the punishment they received is being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It wasn't a punishment. Go look at the text. It was actually an act of mercy. Because, remember that other tree that was there, The other tree is the the tree of life. If you eat from that, you never die. And so God is like, we do not want them to eat from that 
because then they're going to be in this, this sinful, broken state forever. So let's kick them out and not let them go back in so they can have hope for living. And sort of, sort of the opposite parallel, uh, the inverse of the younger son. The younger son is brought back in so that he can find redemption. Before Yahweh sends them on their way, what does he do? He clothes them. He clothes them. And so there's this connection uh, to um, the story of Adam and Eve. It's also a connection to another story we're going to look at later. And so keeping this in mind, this is what the Lord wants. He wants to look upon us. He wants to clothe us with dignity to embrace us. But we've got to allow the grace of his gaze and living in that, a grace that comes directly but often to other people to help us overcome it. So I'm going to close with a quote from Father Jacques Philippe, not as long as last night. Sister Saint wrapped us up. Uh, I'm going 45 minutes. I'm a little bit longer. I'm trying to keep it short. I've got a lot to say. Uh, a quote from Father Jacques Philippe I'd like you all to meditate on. And the homework is, until our next talk, do the best we can to try to live in the loving, merciful gaze of the Father. He says, in talking about St. Therese, Therese let herself be loved just as she was, without ever doubting God's gaze on her was a gaze of love that gave her a great capacity to accept herself and so forget herself completely in order to be fully receptive to God's love and give all to others. Let us ask for the grace to live as Therese did in God's sight and to receive from his gaze the benefits mentioned here, reminding ourselves that the heart of it lies on active faith. That we believe that we are sons and daughters of God, we believe the Father loves us, and that we believe he has great things in store for us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now, I don't want to cause discord over the, the, the course of the retreat, but sometimes the grace does come where as a couple and you're talking, you may want to talk about some of the shame, some of the things that you are ashamed of, some things you've maybe never told your spouse before to bring it to light. And this could be a great time to do it. But just remember, as we're going to talk about, the person who chooses to do this puts themselves in a very vulnerable position. If you are going to be on the receiving end, Please pray for the grace to be like the Father, to embrace, to receive, to understand, to not condemn, to not judge, but simply receive in merciful love and see where the Lord leads you all from there. So these types of retreats, it's precarious, there's a risk, but it can be a chance for a tremendous amount of grace and healing. Amen.